In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents He's in the Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. You better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Emily Amick, aka at Emily in your phone. You may know her from her newsy Instagram account, but did you know she was previously counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer and is now a lawyer who represents American victims of terrorism, as well as the co-host of the We've Got Issues podcast? Emily is here to chat about the state of the Democratic Party, her experience working in the Senate, and what we can possibly do about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. With that, let's get the tea from Emily. Welcome, Emily, to the afternoon tea. I am so thrilled to finally meet you via Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for happy, having me. I'm happy to be here. So for our audience, if you are not familiar with Emily Amick, aka at Emily in your phone on Instagram, she does the most interesting breakdowns of news, really explaining kind of like the behind the scenes to help you make sense of what's going on. And um, you have a ton of experience actually in government, which really adds so much color to how you present what's going on. So I guess we could start... Do you want to tell us about your background working in government and um, what you do now? Sure. So I um, used to be counsel to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, which continues to be an exciting thing to say, Majority Leader. It's never going to get old. Uh, So I did that. I'm currently, I work in private practice and I'm an attorney for terrorism victims. So that is my my current job is private sector, however, has a, a sort of public sector bent because I'm sort of continuing to pursue the public good. Um, I represent terrorism victims who are Americans or who are employees of the U.S. government, and we sue countries that sponsor terrorism against Americans. So, like, what's an example of something you would like a case you would be involved in? Uh, so, a, one a big example is the victims of the 1983 Beirut Marine Barracks bombing. Uh, so we represent those folks in a case against Iran and uh, sort of the more recent ones are the cases of James Foley, Kayla Mueller, Stephen Sotloff, um, Americans who were overseas, who were kidnapped, tortured and murdered by ISIL. Wow, that is quite heavy work. 
<laughs> and you know, it's funny because um, folks who know me from my internet personality, it, they like, it's, it's totally separate lives almost um, because online, I really focus on politics and a, a little bit of like my life um, and my dogs because they're amazing. And I just want everyone to see them because they're so cute. Um, but and I assume everyone else wants to see them because that's what everyone with dogs assumes. <laughs> I'm um, the same. Yeah. Um, and then I do, I very much want to see your dog. So I'll validate that choice. Um, so, you know, and I, because of my experience working for Senator Schumer, I have, I think a lot of insight into how decisions in Congress are being made and something I, I learned through just talking to my friends over the years is it was a very opaque process and people didn't really understand how folks in government and how the parties were making these decisions. So when I started the account, uh, it was really just about like giving people sort of more background and analysis on what's going on. You know, obviously I've taken that platform and now started to use it just to share some of my own views, uh, <laughs> which are many, I have many views on many things. So it's been fun to sort of expand, uh, the Instagram platform for that. Yeah. I mean, what I love about your account is I don't feel like I'm just like hearing some random person's opinion. Like, and I, I say that even like with myself in mind, like you really have so much experience about what's going on behind the scenes that can add context to these big questions of like, why are things happening? Why are certain things happening? Why are certain things not happening? Yeah, I, I love when you do like, what's the chance of X happening? Because I feel like you have like a really good big basis for your opinions, which is pretty rare these days. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I try to be mindful to only talk about things that I think I have something to add, right? Like there's a lot of questions that I get that I don't answer because I don't think I have any useful or thoughtful things to say about it. And chances of is like a little bit more of a fun one. And it's like my prognosis of the future, which obviously I can't predict the future, but it is, I mean, I, I have, there's a degree to which politics is extremely cyclical. So if you've been paying really close attention and been involved for a number of years and you know, the players and how they think, you can sort of predict how, what their actions are going to be like in the future. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So when you were in Majority Leader Schumer's office, what was what does it mean to be counsel to a senator? So, you know, when I worked for Senator Schumer, he was not majority leader. Um, senator Reid was leader of the Democrats at that time. I was specifically a Judiciary Committee counsel. So Senate offices, they'll have they have a personal staff and then they have committee staff. And those are two different things. And so often sometimes the personal staff will have a counsel. And especially in cases where a senator is sitting on a committee and they're high ranking on that committee, they'll get you know, staff to get staffed that committee. And of course, if you're a judiciary committee member, you staff the committee with lawyers. Um, and so typically if you're a, a lawyer on a Senate staff, you have two jobs. One is to cover your issue base. So my issues were terrorism, crime, social justice, um, things like that. And then additionally, 
to provide assistance to sort of all the other staffers in the office when they have legal questions or to provide legal input on how to formulate a speech or, you know, how we should be talking or thinking about a specific issue and to be available at all times for those conversations. That's really, that's really awesome. It sounds like very, very good experience for just having a wide base of knowledge of how governing works. So now that we are nine months into having a Democratic Senate, I'm really curious what kind of grade you would give the Democrats so far. <laughs> Ooh, you know, I think that the Democrats were handed a really tough situation, right? Like it's a 50-50 Senate, which is a very difficult way to govern. They can't lose a single vote on anything ever. And they, you know, have had to deal with the pandemic and all of the refuse of the Trump administration, which has been extremely challenging. I, I have been surprised at how well they've done. And I, I say that not to say I don't have criticisms of which I have many, but I think that they have really pushed ahead and shown a lot of leadership, especially with regards to the COVID relief bills. And they've pushed back on a lot of the fake news coming out of the right in a way that we didn't see them doing before that I found particularly bothersome, right? And and they've stopped sort of, you know, a big lesson everyone learned was with Obamacare in 2008 and that we let sort of Republicans control the narrative and it just ruined the rollout, right? And, and to this day, we're still feeling the effects of that decision. And Democrats have really started to be on the offensive about their policy proposals. I, I think they've done a good job with that. I totally agree that where the Democrats have really shined in the past nine months is with regards to COVID. And it's very clear that they've done everything they can, um, less, you know, physically forcing the unvaccinated to get vaccinated and actually, you know, doing something about like all the misinformation on Facebook. But do you think that like that? But I can't help but feel frustrated that there's so many things that are flying under the radar, particularly voting rights and obviously climate change. But that is like that feels pie in the sky at this point. But let's say voting rights. Do you think that the Republicans, if they were in our position with this exact power structure, how do you think they would be handling it? Long pause. Yeah, <laughs> long pause. Well, so. On voting rights, I think the question is, what more could the Democrats be doing? And I think they've done I, I would have liked to see more messaging. But at the end of the day, they don't have the votes in the Senate. And that's a huge problem and not something that they can overcome. I think that possibly the DOJ could be doing more and there could be more lawsuits. Um, I, you know, this is also something with criminal justice reform. I want to see more consent decrees. I want to see more like mandated oversight. But there's a degree to which there's not really a lot they can do. They're very hampered. You know, I, I think there have been times in very recent history when Republicans controlled all of Congress and the presidency and they didn't do that much. And that's because, you know, the greater posture of the Republican Party is aimed at reducing taxes for the rich and installing uh, conservative voices in the judiciary. And when that's your entire party platform, it's a lot easier, right? Like you don't have to pursue these big, bad 
um, goals that require significant buy-in from, uh, you know, a, a large swath of people who have differing political perspectives. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. To what extent, though, is this about, like, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? Because I know that they get a lot of attention, but, like, are they really the thing, like, what's standing in the way of progress? So Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are the two people who are standing in the way of removing the filibuster. And if we could ha- get rid of of the filibuster, we could then pass things with 50 votes and a Democratic Senate that's a 50-50 Senate could actually pass the voting rights bill, gun violence reform bills, you know, codifying Roe v. Wade. They could do all of those things. Are Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema the only two in the Senate who are objecting to totally removing the filibuster? No. You know, they are really just the two biggest names. And if they weren't there publicly making the blockade, um, you know, I I imagine that other folks would step forward that aren't currently in the strong, you know, public view. I mean, I I think it's an extremely poor decision. And I think that the Democrats should get rid of the filibuster and the number one argument against it, other than this ridiculous idea that there's like some institutional historical value to this, even though it's totally manufactured is that, you know, well, we don't want Republicans to be able to rule with the filibuster free Senate, you know, they're going to get understand. rid of it the second they get. They, yeah. they want to get rid of it and they want to do things. And they're just going to get rid of it. Is this idea that like Donald Trump and the MAGA party has some like dedication to historical precedent? Like that's that's absurd. Right. right. So, is there is there anything that can be done like behind the scenes to get Joe Manchin to change his mind? Like how do you how from the from your end like seeing what goes on like kind of in the background what levers are pulled to try to i guess corral votes and could any of those be used here so joe manchin has staked out a really public position on this and i think there's compromises that he would be willing to take but not totally getting rid of the filibuster at the end of the day it, all roads lead to West Virginia voters, right? Like if you want to influence Joe Manchin, you need to have West Virginia voters change their minds and communicate that to him. And I think at the end of the day, he has probably made the astute 
you know, decision that West Virginia voters don't want him to get rid of the filibuster. And the difference between Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin is that another Democrat's probably not going to win that seat in West Virginia. So we're sort of, you know, West, Joe Manchin is really the best we're going to do. Kristen Sinema is a completely different story. Kristen Sinema, by the way, you know, started as a Green Party candidate. Uh, she got elected saying that she wanted to have a $15 minimum wage. Her centrist theater, her, you know, John McCain theater that she's engaged in is uh, illogical to me. And it's not one that's supported by the people who are going to vote for her. Now, she's her. She's not up, up for election for quite a while. And I think that she knows that. And I think she's hoping that people are going to forget and that she's going to be able to tout her, you know, bipartisan ship things that she's done and, and get herself elected. But at the end of the day, she's going to need to win a primary. So for Kristen Cinema, it's about organizing in Arizona and turning, you know, turning Democrats in Arizona against her, putting ads in Arizona to do that, making calls to her. You know, it has to just be totally focused on constituents. Yeah, I mean, Joe Manchin sucks. But with her, it feels like there's this like added selfishness to it where like she's just doing it like to get a like a rise and she doesn't actually have like a core belief system like as much as as terrible as joe manchin is like there is a bit more of an impression that he is being driven by like some sense of like an ideology or a belief system with her it's just like there doesn't it just seems like she's like in the fuckets like i don't really know what she's thinking yeah, I mean, I think Joe Manchin has been ideologically consistent for a long time, and this behavior should be expected of him. Kristen Cinema, on the other hand, I, I mean, I think the only logical explanation is she wanted to put herself in a position where she's super duper important and put herself in the center of the conversations. And she has successfully done that. You know, to what end? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. unclear to me. I mean, by all accounts, she doesn't have like a ideological core. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah, she absolutely does not. Going back to one thing you said about the filibuster and this idea that it's like institutionally important. What is the answer to that argument? Like, why is it not institutionally or constitutionally important? Because it wasn't created by the founders. It was created by an accidental rule change <laughs> um, by Aaron Burr. <laughs> right. right. Okay. So, so if the filibuster is like not really important, why are we still talking about it? And like, it just seems like Amer like the average American doesn't know or care about the filibuster. And how has that become like this big roadblock that's like really preventing, I, I don't know, like a whole array of things from being fixed. So I think that Mitch McConnell uh, has very effectively got his caucus to message about the importance of a 60 vote threshold and has created this idea that a 60 vote threshold in the Senate is absolutely integral to protecting the interest of the country. And that this sort of moderation requirement 
is in the best interests of the country. You know, it has historically been used to block civil rights legislation, for example. Right? Like that is that was the really big innovation in the 70s. With, oh, like we can use this random procedural tactic. Um, it, I think what you alluded to is the fact that like not a lot of Americans know about it. That is the problem. It's really hard to be a politician and tell people like you really need to get up and excited about this obscure procedural component of <laughs> Senate procedure. Right? Like, it's not something that's really exciting. And I think because of social media, more people are learning about these issues and getting really invested in them. And that's been an incredibly valuable thing. If we if the Senate in 2022 is able, if Democrats are able to get two more seats in the Senate and, and Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin's vote don't matter anymore, you know, there's a chance. My big concern is that I'm worried we're not going to be winning these midterm seats because we're not showing Americans what Democratic leadership looks like, right? Like we are not fulfilling our entire policy platform because the filibuster is blocking us. Right, exactly. Do you think that Democrats think too much about like the electoral consequences of their governing decisions or do they think not enough about them? Um, you know, that's the really funny question. And I think the problem is there's a lot of people in the leadership in the party who are stuck in the 1990s. And totally. they I say that all the time. I'm like they're governing in 1999. <laughs> And they believe that this center exists who wants, um, you know, cornflakes version of politics. They want it to be bland. They want it to be, you know, m moderated and essentially Democrats being a very light form of Republican. And that doesn't work. And I think that the Georgia Senate election is the absolute best proof that Democrats can win in red states if they stake out their values and if they show why they should be elected. And the problem with these Democrats who are focused on being centrists is that they they don't tell anyone what their values are because their values seem to be stopping other Democrats from getting shit done. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think there's sort of like a magic message that could work at this point to, I guess, show people that they're, you know, all these quote unquote red states are maybe not really as red as we think if Democrats were to really like go for it, both by stopping voter suppression and by like, you know, actually getting stuff done once they're elected. So I think that there's two things that Democrats should be focusing on. One is the impact of the reconciliation bill, which is going to you know transform the economic future for a lot of Americans. Right. And these are these kitchen table issues that moderates claim to care a lot about. It's about child care. It's about lowering your taxes. It's about lowering your health care costs. Right. Like these are things that everyday Americans care about and Democrats want to make their lives easier. So I think that's number one, because at the end of the day, you know, people's economic future always ranks as their as one of their top concerns. Uh, And the other thing is that, you know, COVID has to be the top of the conversation. And I think most saliently, I think the conversation needs to be about what are we doing to protect your kids? If you have a kid that's under 12, that kid cannot be vaccinated. What are the parties doing to protect your children? Full stop. That's the question. Right. Why do you think it's become so difficult? (laughs) Like when this seems like it should just be an easy win. We're protecting your kids. They're not. Well, nothing's ever easy in politics and uh, nothing's ever been easy. I think sometimes we think about the past and we think, oh, you know, politics wasn't as bifurcated. It wasn't as argumentative. No, you just weren't paying as much attention, right? Like I wasn't paying attention when I was nine years old. So I don't remember what it was like in the the 90s. But, you know, by all accounts, it was it was the same, but different. The difference is social media and it's now in your brain all the time. You know, I, I think that Republicans are extremely good at messaging and they're extremely good at having everyone in the party stay on the same genre of messaging and saying it over and over and over again. They also empower really good messengers um, and people who are really able to talk um, on social media, on TV, right through a variety of mediums. And the other thing that the Republicans have been doing for a really long time is building up um, these dark money groups that are engaged in surrogate, you know, surrogate messaging. And they have a tremendous machine that focuses on that. And they're willing to say extreme things. I mean, how ridiculous is it that they're willing to promote anti-vax, right? Like, and it's not, it's not a fringe thing anymore. It's everybody. And I see it constantly on Twitter that there's elected members of the United States Congress who are telling people not to get vaccinated. And they are vaccinated. A lot of them are vaccinated. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Democrats have like the, the equivalent potential? Like, or is it just too big of a party with too many ideological, too big of an ideological range? Our 
diversity of opinions is a strength. And I think we need to stop seeing it as a weakness and we need to start seeing it as a strength, right? And the reality is there are values that we all agree on. And that's why we're Democrats. The government is good. The government should serve to make your life better. That the government sh shouldn't be focused on making the rich people's lives better, but rather everyday Americans, right? These are things, climate change is real and it's bad. These are things <laughs> we all agree on. Yeah. Uh, women should have bodily autonomy. You know, these are things that we all agree on and everybody can be talking about at all times. And I think what we need to do is start focusing more about on values and talking about those values and focus less on sort of like pedantic differences in policy opinions. And then, you know, as Democratic voters, we need to realize that we're not always going to get everything we want. But what we should want to see is members of our party with different representing different ideological perspectives, working together and coming to a consensus to sort of move the ball forward. But I, I definitely think that there's a lot of opportunity for the party to get out there and message a lot stronger. What do you make of like the progressive moderate divide in the Democratic Party? Like, do you like, like you just said, like, in theory, it could be a strength. But I think in practice, it hampers a lot of opinions and then drives a lot of media attention of like Dems in disarray, even though I don't really think we're like that in that bad of disarray. I think that there's just a lot of problems. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And I think that the media focus on the fight is one of the big problems. You know, I, I think that the quote unquote moderates are making a huge miscalculation, a phenomenally poor miscalculation calculation right now. And I would say, like, I consider myself a moderate Democrat, right? Like, and I don't think that the people, the Josh Gothheimers of the world represent that strain of the party. I think that they care about themselves. Uh, and, you know, they're a small group of people, you know, they they're making the decision that they want to stake out a position that's that's in opposition to the left in AOC. And, and frankly, that's their position. And it doesn't have a strong ideological core. It's just not the squad. And it's, it's also then not Biden. And disassociating yourself from a popular president is a really good way to lose a midterm election. And that's Right. Like, I, I think they're making a phenomenal miscalculation. They're also really ruining the future for a party. There's ways to push your agenda and to moderate sort of the far left and to serve as a counterweight to that without blocking and pu very publicly making, you know, uh, media fiascos so that you can get your way, which is what they're doing. Right. How do you feel when I, I was just looking from a statement from this morning, I think Nancy Pelosi saying like, basically like Republicans, like get your, get your friend, like, like we need a strong Republican party of like normal people. Like I, and I just want to say in those situations, like we're so it's not, that doesn't, there's no one like, you know, what do you make of like Democrats who think that we're going to get this like old Republican party back? Yeah, well, which also, I mean, it's a weird thing today that we're talking about wanting like the Bush Cheney version of the Republican Party back. I don't want that yeah. so, either. I was so upset right. at that time, too. Right. Um, so the very pressed, like 17 year old. <laughs> 
Um, I, you know, I think that Nancy Pelosi is a strategic mastermind and I am constantly in awe of what she's able to accomplish. So I, you know, and like, look, I also wish there was just this like lovely intellectual counterweight to the democratic party that just was more interested in smaller government and had a, you know, ideologically consistent perspective. That's not going to happen. Like unless pigs start flying, I don't, that's never going to happen. And it's because the two party system rewards tacking extremely far either way. That's how you win your primary. And on the right, you know, where you have these huge, huge swaths of one issue voters um, and an extremely impassioned, you know, minority core of MAGA voters. It's like a surefire way to success in the party. And it's also the way you get boatloads of money, right? Right. Like when you're, when you say these crazy things as a Republican, the donations just roll in. And when without campaign finance reform, right? Like that's, that is the incentive to run for office. Like you need money to run for office full stop. That's how it works. And this is the system we've created. And it also benefits the businesses, right? Like, because they're able to have to, to not have anyone pay attention and to not have the people whose lives are actually going to be really hurt by like getting rid of environmental regulations, for example, uh, care about that because they're just very, you know, focused on these rah, rah jingoist stuff. Anyhow, you know, I think that, look, I think that all of those people who want an extremely moderate Republican party should join the democratic party. And, you know, and like you want to you want to be a moderate Republican, you can become a moderate Democrat. (laughs) Right. Um, Because that's what that is now. Right. Right. Totally. And I yeah, I mean, it just seems like bad behavior or just bad faith comment commentary is so rewarded at this point. And social media makes it so much worse that it's like, how do you ever get anyone acting in good faith when bad faith actions are actually much more incentivized. Right. I mean, I totally agree. And it's on us, right? Like it's on us as voters to reward that behavior. And I think that podcasts like yours and, you know, having folks who have these really large platforms to have more nuanced conversations and asking people to take the time to think about these things is the way we're going to get that done. And I have seen really big changes, right? Like I have seen people be more willing to accept compromises and to not have like knee jerk reactions on the left, which is not how it was like 10, 15 years ago. Right, right. So when it comes to tradition, like more traditional media, what would you say is kind of like the most frustrating thing in how they cover what's going on? Sometimes as an attorney, it's hard for me to answer questions because I really feel like I need to answer the question. Optimize the question. Yeah. And so it's really hard for me to just like provide a a fun and entertaining and intellectually stimulating answer. Whatever. Like, yeah. What just like gets you? Right. So I would say what gets me is that they are relying on people's sort of flash interests. Right. And they like are very, very willing to buy into these huge attention grabbing stunts and promote them in a way that they're not willing to have conversations about the sort of more nuanced issues. 
And I get it. Like they're a business and and I get what they're stuck with, but I also think that they have created this demand, right? Like they have shaped and formed our expectations for the news media and it's not particularly helpful. And I think that a lot of it has to do also with like leadership in newsrooms were not interested in changing for a long time. And I say this as someone who did very poorly in her journalism program because <laughs> I have a master's in journalism and I did not do very well. And it's because I like don't, you know, didn't want to follow sort of the age old techniques. And I wanted to talk in new ways and communicate new ideas. And, and that wasn't how they were structured. And they think a lot of newspapers are changing um, and more more importantly, like alternative news sources are increasingly developing. And I think, you know, in 20 years, right, like I think that news is going to be totally disaggregated. And I think we're all going to be receiving our news sources. And my big concern is that there's not going to be anyone doing original reporting. Um, And that's such an important value. So that's, you know, I hope we continue to pay money for original reporting. Right. I mean, I think the issue is that like, like, exactly what you said, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a business and businesses want more revenue and fewer costs and original reporting, investigative reporting is high cost. And, and that is like, without even considering the incentives that some of these outlets have to not find things or to look the other way and then you just get into the whole kind of question of like you know the elite upper echelons of society are kind of like all in each other's pockets and yeah it's really turned news into like ESPN for politics Um, and it's quite disappointing I I will say I think like there are an increasing number of political news resources. Punchbowl News came out, right? Like they do a bunch of newsletters in addition to Politico and The Hill. And we now have all of these sub stacks that do commentary that aggregate all the political news. So I do think that like there's a lot of criticisms of political news in particular. However, I do think it is one of the the sort of like best areas of news because there's so many there's so many publications that are like singularly focused on it. Right. Are there any issues that you feel like fly completely under the radar or don't get really enough attention, um, but that you know from experience is are really important? You know, I think what's interesting is that there's nothing that I'm not talking about, right? And I think that that is what social media has done. Has Like, if you had asked me that three years ago, I would have been like, Oh, the filibuster, right? You know, I would have been like the parliamentarian, like no one's talking about the parliamentarian, but like everyone's talking about all of these things now. So it is really different. I think that also like the subpoena power of Congress, that's sort of obscure, but people are talking about it because of January 6th. So there's, I think a lot of issues and we're talking about all of them. And part of the problem is there are so many issues and everyone is talking about all of them that it's hard to sort of move the ball forward. I would say like, I think that 
the conversation that I don't see enough is talking about the value of social media and politics, right? Like we're all having these online conversations, but it seems to be a lot of, like a very cynical conversation that people are having and they feel that they're, they're doing it, but not really making a difference. And I think that's a really, that's completely the wrong perspective for the value of talking about politics on social media. Like, I think that when we have these conversations online, it fundamentally transforms all of the conversations people are having in public. And and yeah, like the Twitterati do not reflect like the normal American person. However, they are shaping the intellectual discourse of the country and perhaps issues they're talking about now, one, two, three years down the line are going to become more public issues. I mean, I just like look at the green when AOC first talked about the Green New Deal, right? Like the public reaction was so strong and so against it. And I would say like the mainstream Democratic Party was so against it, but the internet was super for it. And people kept talking about it and people kept talking about the value. And Gen Z, who are like amazing communicators, kept pushing this issue. And it, it's now it's a 100% mainstream issue. You see party leadership talking about it all the time. Right, like, and that that is really, really quick. And twenty years ago, you did not see massive changes in, um, you know, the American conversation happen so quickly. So I think it's really important to have these conversations online, and then concurrently to realize that the way to move individual members of Congress is through constituent action. Right, like, and and we can influence those constituents via these conversations. Right. I think I actually think you have really, really nailed that. That is so true. And something that else that I've noticed is that the conversation that's on Twitter is very, very different than the conversation that's going on on Instagram and TikTok. Like, I think you actually get like norm, you get a sense of what normal average people are talking about when you view these conversations on Instagram and TikTok. But when you're on Twitter, you're like in this very specific very out of touch conversation and like it definitely is important and adds you know information i get so much information on twitter but like there's a different priority almost like it's so much more meta rather than like on instagram and tiktok i feel like people are talking about like the problem not like what politico playbook said about the problem and like you know what I mean? I know exactly. I think that's really interesting. You know, and I feel like for Twitter, Twitter really records rewards either breaking news or hot takes. And th those are the only two things it rewards. It doesn't like reward a conversation, a thoughtful conversation. And I also say like, I think that, you know, People, a lot of people are unwilling to have to look to Instagram for their news and their politics and things like that. And I think it's veiled misogyny, right? Like I think Instagram is seen as the platform for women. And, you know, 97% of my followers are women. And it's because I think those are the people who are on Instagram. And I think because of that, it's not taken as seriously. And I think that's BS, right? And I think that the reality is you can have these more thoughtful and long form conversations on Instagram and there's more opportunity 
opportunity for like having follow-ups and having, you know, referencing lengthy things other people have said, but still in interesting and thoughtful ways. I mean, TikTok is like a whole other genre that I can't get into because like it's a wormhole for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you could, yeah, it provides just so many, so much opportunity for communication. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that what Gen Z has shown is that like you can make these things interesting and it doesn't have to be 50 year old men sitting behind a desk telling you what it is. It can be all of us having a conversation about what it should be. Right. And and that wasn't what it was like before social media. Uh, You know, we were like writing letters to the editor and like hoping that the 80 year old editor in chief who's or 80 year old head of the opinion section would be like willing to publish your article about choice <laughs> right it's which they never would fairly yeah well we have come far so there's that so emily you really do such amazing things on social media can you tell everyone where they can find you where they can find your new podcast and just about what you're doing because i highly recommend following emily she has just so much amazing insight to share thank you sammy so i'm at instagram at at emily in your phone and then I have a podcast with Jess Kirby. It's called We've Got Issues with Emily and Jess. And we do sort of 15 minute episodes where we focus on a single narrow subject. Uh, The only episode that we've had is longer than that is with Cecile Richards, because, you know, it would be a crime to not publish every single word she said. But, uh, you know, we try to talk about issues that also affect women. So not just politics, like imposter syndrome um, and COVID. We talked a lot about with my dad which was really fun. Dad in your phone. (laughs) Dad in your phone, who's very adorable and extremely excited. Uh, He thinks he's a huge internet celebrity now. Um, (laughs) He's kind of right. (laughs) You know, in a a way. So, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's, I think, like a good addition to your political podcast uh, list. Definitely. And everyone go follow at Emily in your phone for just really interesting Q&As and info. And Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. And of course, we would love to talk to you again as things unfold. There's always going to be something new coming out of Washington, D.C., that's for sure. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks. We'll be right back with our buzzworthy news segment of the day. Hello, everybody. It is Amanda popping in after this incredible conversation between Sammy and Emily, because it wouldn't be a Betcha Stuff podcast without our buzzworthy news segment brought to you by Dame. Putting the buzz in all the right places and making the world a happier place, one vulva at a time. Today's buzzworthy news headline, first is that I'm hungry. It's Yom Kippur. (laughs) We just discussed off off the mic that um, I'm not fasting today, but for some reason, I'm like, I can make it till lunch. I've God appreciates it. <laughs> you know, it is, you know, every little thing counts. And um, yeah, happy Yom Kippur, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, today's Dave headline is that this is awesome. The World Anti-Doping Agency, belatedly, but the World Anti-Doping Agency has announced that they're reconsidering cannabis as being on the banned substances list for the Olympics following, quote, requests from a number of stakeholders. Um, I don't know if we're in that stakeholder list. Is it the thousands of people who tweeted? But um, they're reconsidering it. Well, you know, the good news is now we can we can join the Olympics. <laughs> we're still axed out of the White House, but we could maybe um, 
join a fencing team, <laughs> invent a new sport that we could get in there. Like, <laughs> like Bravo watching, <laughs> marathoning. Hey, marathoning. It's an, it's an athletic shows. event. It's an athletic event. You know, my heart rate's up. Your heart rate's up. You got to have endurance. You got to have stamina. You got to have commitment. So, I mean, mm-hmm. and you know what? Cannabis Focus really enhances yeah, that experience, exactly. I would say. I would say. So a change of policy wouldn't go into effect until after 2022. That's after the Winter Olympics, if it were to be enacted at all. This obviously came after super public and widespread uproar when Carrie Richardson won the 100-meter dash in June 2021 at the Olympic trials, but was disqualified when she tested positive for cannabis, which she disclosed afterwards that she had used while grieving her mother's death. You know, getting, she doesn't even need oh, a fucking as if she needs an excuse. I get that she needs an excuse for like some people, but like in my mind, like, okay, you, I'm like, like, <laughs> you had like a lot of pressure from your job being an Olympian and you just like wanted to smoke. Okay. Or I, I have, I like, uh, okay. I, I use it to grieve any emotion. So whatever you need, girl. Yeah. <laughs> grieve, like <laughs> grieve, like the weird comment you made in the meeting, like grieve. <laughs> The fact that like you have to, I don't know. Precisely. (laughs) Accessible. There are plenty of good reasons, but Richardson herself told today in August that if the agency were to reconsider the ban on cannabis, she would be quote blessed and proud to have paved the way for future athletes to participate. So she was, she was, you know, withheld a potential gold medal turn in Tokyo because of this, but maybe she can change the policy for, for future cannabis enthusiasts or people that use it so many people that use it medicinally or just to get through their life more comfortably. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, she could, she could be a judge on the activist with this. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. I mean, speaking of activities that are, are enhanced yeah. by this, that was right. our buzzworthy news segment brought to you by Dame to get that buzz. You can try Dame for yourself by visiting dameproducts.com slash sup you can learn more and take a quiz to find out which vibe or product will be the perfect fit. Take this quiz. I can attest that what they send you will be the, will meet your needs. I can attest everything. <laughs> the quiz was effective. Plus all new customers will get 15% off their first order at dameproducts.com slash sup. That's D-A-M-E-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S dot com slash sup. Batches.